This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Cellophaeus by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Gordon Gould. It runs 16 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. Salatheus by H.P. Lovecraft In a dream, Curanes saw the city in the valley, and the seacoast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor toward distant regions where the sea meets the sky. In a dream it was also that he came by his name of Curanes, for when awake he was called by another name. Perhaps it was natural for him to dream a new name, for he was the last of his family, and alone among the indifferent millions of London, so there were not many to speak to him and remind him who he had been. His money and lands were gone, and he did not care for the ways of people about him, but preferred to dream and write of his dreams. What he wrote was laughed at by those to whom he showed it, so that after a time he kept his writings to himself, and finally ceased to write. The more he withdrew from the world about him, the more wonderful became his dreams, and it would have been quite futile to try to describe them on paper. Curanes was not modern and did not think like others who wrote. Whilst they strove to strip from life its embroidered robes of myth, and to show in naked ugliness the foul thing that is reality, Curanes sought for beauty alone. When truth and experience failed to reveal it, he sought it in fancy and illusion, and found it on his very doorstep, amid the nebulous memories of childhood tales and dreams. There are not many persons who know what wonders are open to them in the stories and visions of their youth. For when, as children, we listen and dream, we think but half-formed thoughts. And when, as men, we try to remember, we are dulled and prosaic with the poison of life. But some of us awake in the night with strange phantasms of enchanted hills and gardens, of fountains that sing in the sun, of golden cliffs overhanging murmuring seas, of plains that stretch down to sleeping cities of bronze and stone, and of shadowy companies of heroes that ride caparisoned white horses along the edges of thick forests. And then we know that we have looked back through the ivory gates into that world of wonder which was ours before we were wise and unhappy. Uranes came very suddenly upon his old world of childhood. He had been dreaming of the house where he was born, the great stone house covered with ivy, where thirteen generations of his ancestors had lived, and where he had hoped to die. It was moonlight, and he had stolen out into the fragrant summer night, through the gardens, down the terraces, past the great oaks of the park, and along the long white road to the village. The village seemed very old eaten away at the edge like the moon which had commenced to wane, and Curanes wondered whether the peaked roofs of the small houses hid sleep or death. In the streets were spears of long grass, and the window panes on either side were either broken or filmily staring. Curanes had not lingered, 
but had plodded on as though summoned toward some goal. He dared not disobey the summons, for fear it might prove an illusion like the urges and aspirations of waking life, which do not lead to any goal. Then he had been drawn down a lane that led off from the village street toward the channel cliffs, and had come to the end of things, to the precipice and the abyss, where all the village and all the world fell abruptly into the unechoing emptiness of infinity, and where even the sky ahead was empty and unlit by the crumbling moon and the peering stars. Faith had urged him on, over the precipice and into the gulf, where he had floated down, 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 past dark, shapeless, undreamed dreams, faintly glowing spheres that may have been partly dreamed dreams, and laughing winged things that seemed to mock the dreamers of all the worlds. Then a rift seemed to open in the darkness before him, and he saw the city of the valley, listening radiantly far, far below, with a background of sea and sky and a snow-capped mountain near the shore. Uranus had awaked the very moment he beheld the city, yet he knew from his brief glance that it was none other than Salatheus in the valley of Uth Nargai, beyond the Tenarian hills, where his spirit had dwelt all the eternity of an hour one summer afternoon very long ago, when he had slipped away from his nurse and let the warm sea breeze lull him to sleep as he watched the clouds from the cliff near the village. He had protested then when they had found him, waked him, and carried him home, for just as he was aroused, he had been about to sail in a golden galley for those alluring regions where the sea meets the sky. And now he was equally resentful of awaking, for he had found his fabulous city after forty weary years. But three nights afterward, Curanes came again to Salatheus. As before, he dreamed first of the village that was asleep or dead, and of the abyss down which one must float silently. Then the rift appeared again, and he beheld the glittering minarets of the city, and saw the graceful galleys riding at anchor in the blue harbor, and watched the ginkgo trees of Mount Aaron swaying in the sea breeze. But this time he was not snatched away, and like a winged being settled gradually over a grassy hillside, till finally his feet rested gently on the turf. He had indeed come back to the valley of Uth Nargai and the splendid city of Salatheus. Down the hill, amid scented grasses and brilliant flowers, walked Curanes, over the bubbling Naraxa on the small wooden bridge where he had carved his name so many years ago, and through the whispering grove to the great stone bridge by the city gate. All was as of old, nor were the marble walls discolored, nor the polished bronze statues upon them tarnished, and Curanes saw that he need not tremble lest the things he knew be vanished, for even the sentries on the ramparts were the same, and still as young as he remembered them. When he entered the city, past the bronze gates and over the onyx pavements, the merchants and camel drivers greeted him as if he had never been away and it was the same at the turquoise temple of Nath-Horthath, where the orchid-wreathed priests told him that there is no time in Uth-Nargai, but only perpetual youth. Then Kiranes walked through the street of pillars to the seaward wall, where gathered the traders and sailors, 
and strange men from the regions where the sea meets the sky. There he stayed long, gazing out over the bright harbor where the ripples sparkled beneath an unknown sun, and where rode lightly the galleys from far places over the water. And he gazed also upon Mount Aran, rising regally from the shore, its lower slopes green with swaying trees, and its white summit touching the sky. More than ever, Uranus wished to sail in a galley to the far places of which he had heard so many strange tales, and he sought again the captain who had agreed to carry him so long ago. He found the man, Athib, sitting on the same chest of spices he had sat upon before, and Athib seemed not to realize that any time had passed. Then the two rowed to a galley in the harbor, and giving orders to the oarsmen, commenced to sail out into the billowy Serenarian Sea that leads to the sky. For several days they glided undulatingly over the water, till finally they came to the horizon where the sea meets the sky. Here the galley paused not at all, but floated easily in the blue of the sky among fleecy clouds tinted with rose. And far beneath the keel, Uranus could see strange lands and rivers and cities of surpassing beauty spread indolently in the sunshine which seemed never to lessen or disappear. At length, Athib told him that their journey was near its end, and that they would soon enter the harbor of Seranian, the pink marble city of the clouds, which is built on that ethereal coast where the west wind flows into the sky. But as the highest of the city's carven towers came into sight, there was a sound somewhere in space, and Curanes awaked in his London garret. For many months after that, Curanes sought the marvelous city of Salopheus and its sky-bound galleys in vain. And though his dreams carried him to many gorgeous and unheard-of places, no one whom he met could tell him how to find Uthnargai, beyond the Tenarian hills. One night, he went flying over dark mountains where there were faint, lone campfires at great distances apart, and strange, shaggy herds with tinkling bells on the leaders. And in the wildest part of this hilly country, so remote that few men could ever have seen it, he found a hideously ancient wall or causeway of stone zigzagging along the ridges and valleys, too gigantic ever to have risen by human hands, and of such a length that neither end of it could be seen. Beyond that wall, in the gray dawn, he came to a land of quaint gardens and cherry trees, and when the sun rose, he beheld such beauty of red and white flowers, green foliage and lawns, white paths, diamond brooks, blue lakelets, carven bridges, and red-roofed pagodas, that he for a moment forgot Salafaeus in sheer delight. But he remembered it again when he walked down a white path toward a red-roofed pagoda, and would have questioned the people of that land about it, had he not found that there were no people there, but only birds and bees and butterflies. On another night, Uranus walked up a damp stone spiral stairway endlessly, and came to a tower window overlooking a mighty plain and river lit by the full moon and in the silent city that spread away from the river bank, he thought he beheld some feature or arrangement which he had known before. He would have descended and asked the way to Uth Nargai, 
had not a fearsome aurora sputtered up from some remote place beyond the horizon, showing the ruin and antiquity of the city, and the stagnation of the reedy river, and the death lying upon that land. As it had lain since King Kynarathalus came home from his conquests to find the vengeance of the gods. So Curanes sought fruitlessly for the marvelous city of Selatheus, and its galleys that sailed to Seranian in the sky, meanwhile seeing many wonders, and once barely escaping from the high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face, and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery on the cold desert plateau of Leng. In time he grew so impatient of the bleak intervals of day that he began buying drugs in order to increase his periods of sleep. Hashish helped a great deal, and once sent him to a part of space where form does not exist, but where glowing gases study the secrets of existence. And a violet-colored gas told him that this part of space was outside what he had called infinity. The gas had not heard of planets and organisms before, but identified Uranus merely as one from the infinity where matter, energy, and gravitation exist. Uranus was now very anxious to return to minaret-studded Celepheus and increased his doses of drugs, but eventually he had no more money left and could buy no drugs. Then one summer day, he was turned out of his garret and wandered aimlessly through the streets, drifting over a bridge to a place where the houses grew thinner and thinner. And it was there that fulfillment came, and he met the cortege of knights come from Salafaeus to bear him thither forever. Handsome knights they were, astride roan horses and clad in shining armor with tabards of cloth of gold curiously emblazoned. So numerous were they that Curanes almost mistook them for an army, but their leader told him they were sent in his honor, since it was he who had created Uthnagai in his dreams, on which account he was now to be appointed its chief god forevermore. Then they gave Curanes a horse, and placed him at the head of the cavalcade, and all rode majestically through the downs of Surrey and onward toward the region where Curanes and his ancestors were born. It was very strange but as the riders went on, they seemed to gallop back through time. For whenever they passed through a village in the twilight, they saw only such houses and villages as Chaucer or men before him might have seen. And sometimes they saw knights on horseback with small companies of retainers. When it grew dark, they traveled more swiftly, till soon they were flying uncannily as if in the air. In the dim dawn, they came upon the village which Curanes had seen alive in his childhood and asleep or dead in his dreams. It was alive now, and early villagers courtesied as the horsemen clattered down the street and turned off into the lane that ends in the abyss of dream. Curanes had previously entered that abyss only at night and wondered what it would look like by day, so he watched anxiously as the column approached its brink. Just as they galloped up the rising ground to the precipice, a golden glare came somewhere out of the east and hid all the landscape in its effulgent draperies. The abyss was now a seething chaos of roseate and cerulean splendor, and invisible voices sang exultantly as the knightly entourage plunged over the edge and floated gracefully down past glittering clouds and silvery coruscations. 
Endlessly down the horsemen floated, their chargers pawing the ether as if galloping over golden sands. And then the luminous vapors spread apart to reveal a greater brightness, the brightness of the city Salafaeus, and the sea coast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor toward distant regions where the sea meets the sky. And Curanes reigned thereafter over Uth-Nargai, and all the neighboring regions of Dream, and held his court alternately in Salafaeus and in the cloud-fashioned Saranian. He reigns there still, and will reign happily forever, though below the cliffs at Innsmouth the channel tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who had stumbled through the half-deserted village at dawn, played mockingly and cast it upon the rocks by ivy-covered Trevor Towers, where a notably fat and especially offensive millionaire brewer enjoys the purchased atmosphere of extinct nobility. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. And this is Wayne June. And we're going to talk about Cellophaeus by H.P. Lovecraft. First published in The Rainbow, a uh, great name for a magazine, May 1922, uh, then in Marvel Tales in 34, and then in Weird Tales, June-July uh, 39. And when it was published there, which is the first probably sort of mainstream publication, um, it was titled A Posthumous Weird Fantasy, which I think adds additional resonance um, I, I, I was thinking about how much this story is just a story about H.P. Lovecraft's life. Mm-hmm. You guys get that sense while you're reading yeah, it? Yeah, it, it certainly ha- has has his uh, his earmarks <laughs> all over it. Uh, it uh, the I'm trying to think of some of the descriptions of life that he put in there, almost as a uh, almost as an afterthought. Um, well, there's, there's one really nice line about how others want to pick apart the robes of mythology. I think it's something like that, um, of life. I, I, uh, I have it right here. Do you? Yes, I do. Kiranis was not modern and did not think like other who wrote while they strove to strip from life, its embroidered robes and myth, and to show in naked ugliness the foul thing that is reality, Kirani sought for beauty alone. When truth mm. and experience failed to reveal it, he sought it in fancy and illusion, and found it on his very doorstep, amid the nebulous memories of childhood tales and dreams. <laughs> the foul thing that is reality. I love that. Uh, and show it for its naked ugliness. Right? Yep. I mean, that is... That's that so Lovecraft. Is... It's. I think that's reality too, right? I mean, <laughs> reality ain't fucking pretty at all. Absolutely. On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, there is some beauty in it. Um, but if, especially if it's human reality, man, it's fucking ugly. <laughs> Can be, anyways. Yeah, and um, he uh, and uh, Lovecraft always seems to find uh, uh, whatever kind of beauty he recognizes or stumbles upon. It's it's always in. In fantasy, nothing. <laughs> he 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 liked nothing to do with uh, with consciousness or objective reality at all. 
I I really I really like the um, Jason Thompson adaptation, uh, comic book adaptation. It's it's really beautiful. His version of the White Ship is gorgeous as well. Um, I didn't like it. I keep saying this every time I talk about Jason Thompson's art. I didn't like it at first, but it, it really grew on me. And he he drew, put so much detail and attention into every panel. Um, when we visualize in the story, uh, ad- adapting the comic book adaptation, mm-hmm. um, when he shows London, it both seems not so bad and quite annoying and horrible. <laughs> um, it's kind of beautiful because it looks like London uh, in the 19th century with, you know, smokestacks and endless row houses and uh, people walking around with hats. And, and then you like look at one of the panels on the second page. Um, there's a bunch of people sort of in the street and we're not even sure if the main characters in this panel, there's just so many characters. Uh, there's a few people looking at magazines uh, there's a sign for Yisto. Yisto, yeah. <laughs> and, and then Bifo. beside that, Bifo. And then the nice little allusion to uh, the story um, that sort of precedes this one, uh, Thomas Shap and presumably company, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is raising up Thomas Shap more than he was. But then uh, just to the bottom right panel, you see two sort of horrible street people smashing a cat. Gleefully. Okay. I'm, I'm, Gleefully. I'm, I'm looking for this now here. Do, 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 what, what does the panel so say? Help so me out. It's in the top left. Uh, sorry, it's in the top right hand corner of the second page. It says his money and lands were gone and he did not care for the ways of the people. Around oh, yeah. Him. That's what. <laughs> I didn't yeah, notice that. That's what they're stomping doing. Stomping a cat. Yeah. Very nice. uh, it looks like a cat to me. I mean, it, maybe it's not, but. No, it does. It does uh, look like one. And uh, maybe they just didn't have their. Daily portion of yeasto, the common. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that, that's a that's a very uh, sort of uh, my uh, yeah, I'm thinking of uh, you know like drugs and opiates. Yeah, they have they haven't been calmed down by yeasto, so they're going to stop a cat. <laughs> Not like our hero, who's a hashish man. Yes. Um, but so I'm, yeah, I'm, there's a. I'm not so sure. I I, I feel uh conflicted about the anonymity of the drawing of the character and the I I understand that yeah I mean he's, he's, he's just a that's how face. I felt first too he, he's a he's sort of a m- m- far more cartoony than the other characters um, that he visits with yeah. less detail about him than anyone else and you know if you read that uh, book about how to understand comics um, it helps a bit um, because you know, the more cartoony the character, the more people can throw themselves into them. Sure, put their own and this put their own spin on it, so to speak. Yeah, and um, the other nice thing is we actually see uh, Kirani's whatever his human form is. Uh, is it um, Tower uh, Trevor? I guess is, is the family name. We get it at the end of the story. Um, he he has a regular face when he's awake, yeah, well, but you never really look at it. Yeah, and plus when he's uh, when he's awake or when there's frames in there or when he's dreaming, he's an old guy. You know, that's he, right. He's like an old, wizened, crinkled, wrinkled guy. And then uh, in his imaginings, you know, he, he looks uh, uh, 
much less wearied, you know, uh, either having no face in the frame or just eyes or, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's the one page, I think it's page eight, where you have this gigantic spread with the old guy in the center sleeping and coming out of it are little forms of the dream Kiranis. And then you have all the panels arranged around it, almost like a, uh, like a board game. If you look at it, that yep. way. I thought that was really well done. It's an amazing, um, adaptation that, that, that whole book that Jason Thompson has is excellent. And he, he's also done a map of the dreamlands that you can just spend hours and hours looking at because there's so many places mentioned. Um, you know, it's not just the dream quest of Unknown Kadath. It's all the other places, too. So I would highly recommend people uh, pick up the book if they're at all interested in in uh, this. And that, that sequence on, I, I guess you were saying it's page 8, um, that's the sequence where he's trying to get back to to the uh, Valley of Utnar guy. And everywhere he goes, nobody can help him. Right, nobody's heard of it. And then the very next panel on the next page is the great scene, which you may not have recognized if you don't look at the words. But it says, "Ashis once sent him to a place where form does not exist, but where glowing gases study the secrets of existence." <laughs> and an alt uh, and a violet colored gas told him that that part of space was outside what he call had called infinity. Um, and I love how the violet cover uh, the gases are. S- are studying the secrets of existence using all sorts of you know, yeah, microscopes. There's and, a comp. There's a compass and protractor. Yes, it's like it's very 19th century Victorian science being conducted by glowing gases. Right, and <laughs> it's directly contradicting the fact that there's form does not exist. Well, they they created like a telescope and a microscope. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's that's dreams for you, right? Yeah, I've never seen uh, um, this guy's art before. It it looks uh, looks like it's uh, it looks like a lot a lot like the head comics of the '60s and '70s. Did you ever see any of those? Yeah, yeah. It's very um, he's got his own style, and I don't I didn't like like I said I didn't like it at first. I was turned off by the character being sort of the balloon head you know mm-hmm. but um i totally like it now and i in fact i'm you know i bought the book and I'm, <laughs> I'm like pouring over it and getting any chance to talk about it so um it, it, the other thing is he's very influenced by if you look at the um the non main character he's very influenced by manga style so those those folks you know big eyes yeah spiky hair that sort of thing but um the, I think the reason I don't like manga is because the story sucks, right? And this is not a sucky story at all. This is the opposite. So, I I do uh, I do think people should check this out. Um, what what did you think about the first panel? Because it says in the dream, Karani saw the valley and the seacoast beyond and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor towards distant regions where the sea meets the sky, and the majority of the imagery is uh, hot air balloons, right? Yeah. Right. We see a few bo- boats, but it's mostly balloons. And we also see a flying ship in amongst those. That's balloons. right. A couple of flying ships, actually. That's uh, right. I didn't need to see that second one until now. So, but that's, that's just going with, he's taking 
dream imagery and think, well, why not having sailing in the sky? Because because toward distant regions where the sea meets the sky, therefore you can get there by by right. boat or by sky. It doesn't matter. In the end, they all become they both become one. So you can get That's there right. by either mode of. Tri- of, uh, and I, I love how the buildings, you know, the domes, right, are the same shape as the hot air balloons. So yep. that's like, just some of the buildings take off. And that is so dreamlike. Yeah. And it's a clever device, too, to put them in there. Because if you uh, think about it and looking at the picture, if the balloons weren't there, the ship is there. It's above the horizon. But your first thought wouldn't necessarily be in looking at an illustration that uh, it's in the sky. It, you know, right. it, it would just look like uh, maybe it's off in the distance on the sea. But by putting the balloons up there, it's uh, it it gives it the the perspective it needs, so that uh, you know you know what he's you're right trying to um, trying to yeah. trying to picture. This is this is why I, I so like uh, you know looking at adaptations when we talked about um, the thing on the doorstep, mm-hmm. right? Doing a film version of that, you have to do. You have to solve problems, right? You have to figure out, okay, well, I can't do this motif. We'll, we'll do that motif. And what when when somebody takes the time to really uh, solve the problems of a script, right? Or a, in this case, a, a script on of imagery, um, you you go deep into the story. Yep. That I think this is like it's literally a nineteen minute story, right? It. it doesn't even take 20 minutes to read but you could spend weeks inside of it because every line has some placement that's important and the words are you know are incredibly deep too i i would go I, when i do this story with my students you know we'll get through a page and a half in two hours which is insane yeah right? <laughs> That's yep. an insane amount of time to spend on a uh, page and a half and working hard all the way through it. And uh, I, I really dig that. So before maybe we get too deep into the story proper, I wanted to talk about uh, the dream, not the dream festival, no Kadath, although I think we should talk about that too. Um, but rather the fungi from Yagath, which is written long after this. Um, about seven, eight years after this. I think this was first written in 1920, and Fungi from Yugath was written like in five weeks, I think, between 1929 and 1929. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> um, so uh, it's 36 sonnets uh, dealing with sort of the vast array of Lovecraft's themes and motifs. Um, and things that repeat and uh, show up. There isn't that much uh, gore, which you see in some of the stories uh, in the Fungi from Yoga. There, there's some some dead things, but they're not, you know, fully fleshed out as it as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's an, uh, a good percentage of them is sort of dreamland like. Um, but I want to start with. Uh, I don't know if you guys have the. Yep, I have it up in front of you. Um, just type in fungi from Yagath onto the, into the Google. And, um, um, we're looking at, I want to look at, uh, number XVII, which would be 17, a memory, a memory, a memory. Let's see, where is that? I'm I'm going to read it. Oh, please do. Okay. 17, a memory. There were great steps. 
and rocky tablelands, stretching half-limitless in starlit night, with alien campfires shedding feeble light on beasts with tinkling bells in shaggy bands. Far to the south, the plain sloped low and wide to a dark zigzag line of wall that lay like a huge python on some primal day, which endless time had chilled and petrified. I shivered oddly in the cold, thin air and wondered where I was and how I came when a cloak form against the campfire's glare rose and approached and called me by my name. Staring at a dead face beneath the hood, I ceased to hope because I understood. <laughs> nice. And then the next, the very next one, um, you can see these lead from one to the other. The very next one, beyond that wall, right? Oh, the it's Gardens of wall- Yin, yes. Leads to the Gardens of Yin. Now, uh, the Gardens of Yin is obviously not Salafaeus. However, um, this in reading Salafaeus, you will note that there are very similar lines, at least in the first stanza. Listen to this. This is from Salafaeus. One night he went flying over dark mountains where the faint, where there were faint lone campfires at great distances apart and strange shaggy herds with tinkling bells on the leaders and in the wildest parts of the hill country so remote that few men could have ever been have ever seen it he found a hideously ancient wall or causeway so uh, of stone zigzagging along the ridges and the valleys too gigantic ever to have risen by human hands and of such a length that neither end of it could be seen beyond that wall right (laughs) he goes into the valley of uh the garden of zin or yin yeah right this is this is like uh, this is a real dream that he wrote down, right? And he's mining for this story. And he's he did it as a, po- a couple of poems in Fungi from Yagath, and he put it in Salafaeus. That's why the story is so awesome, is that it's it's not it's real in a certain sense, right? In the it's also a dream, but it's real. Yeah, uh, I got the I get the sense that um, uh, he refers to hashish in uh, in Salafaeus, but uh, I don't I don't know if um, uh, if H. P. Lovecraft ever uh, experimented with you know hashish or, or any stuff, but but it reminds me of uh, uh, Kubla Khan by Coleridge. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, and where it's coming from. And and if I understand it correctly. Uh, Coleridge got that from a dream, but he got it from an opium dream. So, yep. yeah. Uh, wh- whereas uh, um, Coleridge uh, got his uh, impetus, if you will, from uh, from opium. I don't. I don't know that H.P. Lovecraft himself ever did. I haven't uh, read anything that uh, that says he, you know, ever used. No. I think he was a teetotaler, actually. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but he certainly had the the fascination with the idea. And uh, and used that, um, but uh, but yeah, the imagery is, is uh, uh, in, in this is from an actual dream of his, right? It, it must be because he's using he's using that imagery twice, and you know he wrote down everything. So uh, there was a great quote I I tweeted out this week um, by somebody, and it says, you know, yeah, H.P. Lovecraft's a great le- writer, but. Uh, far more fascinating is the man himself. And I think the reason for that is we know basically everything about him from beginning to end because he was always writing 
and there's so much written and because he's so different from other people um it it's it, it, and it, very intellectual and he had all these problems right? uh, exactly the same kinds of problems as our our narrator here right he he came from wealth um he lost his home and family uh spends most of his time dreaming um when he shows his writings to people they laugh and so he becomes more isolated not that that's 100% accurate of lovecraft right but certainly at, at points in his life yeah. mm-hmm. and finally um ends up you know sort of dead in a garret apartment um but his dreams live on but he could he couldn't have predicted that his dream that 80 years later we'd be talking about his stuff i i know he might have hoped for it but i don't i think sadly that he didn't think he he was going to have this sort of immortality well it's weird right because he's alive for a lot more people than he was uh when he was alive yeah (laughs) for himself as far as we know he's gone and i think he would have agreed he's gone too but this is a story that is against that right and that's why it's so I think a lot of people like find I, I was reading about what people think about this story and a lot of people uh, they think it's beautiful but they also think it's horrifying and I don't think it's horrifying as much as it, it is sort of a slow sad tragedy yeah and as you said before it really does kind of reflect his life uh, you know in the part you just mentioned where uh, where uh, when people read uh, what he wrote they laugh and like well in, that's certainly not true today no he's he's definitely he's definitely got a got a, a place in uh, in the history of fiction but uh, at the time maybe they weren't literally laughing at him but they certainly weren't taking him seriously so maybe he felt that way uh, i think if you get reject you know send in your your uh, wonderfully written story to a magazine that publishes sort of shitty fiction and and every once in a while you get rejected yeah. um and you know you you're uncompromising like he he was you know i'm not going to uh, it's i see so much of myself in uh sort of his attitudes towards um money and disdain for it and that sort of thing like one of the things i'll i'll do is i'll i'll work hard to earn a little bit of money so that i don't have to compromise and and tell lies uh, and untruths about you know what i'm supposed to do what i'm supp- you know if if you're at a job and they're trying to make you upsell people things that they don't need mm-hmm. that i just can't do that and that's why i'm so bad at it so i'll work really really hard not to have to have that job um one there's a story i want i want to get Wayne to look at because um it's there's no audiobook available for it it's um it's a weird story called uh oh jeez it's it's this i'm I can't bring it to mind. It's a, it's quite late from near the end of his life. Um, and it's not a great story, but it's got great writing in it. And the reason it's not, oh, it's called uh, The Diary of Alonzo Typer. Alonzo Typer, I think it's called. And it's written by Lovecraft with credit to uh, someone else as well, the guy who he wrote it for, basically, and who sold it to Weird Tales uh, without Lovecraft's name on it at all. Wow. Um, um, and Lovecraft apparently felt, um, sorry for the guy. <laughs> um, and so he helped him write a story, but the, the guy who wrote it is essentially illiterate. Um, so he, you know, he told Lovecraft the, the idea he had and Lovecraft 
did what he normally does in this situation is say, uh-huh. And then he just basically ignores everything of about the idea except for maybe one thing and <laughs> writes his own stuff. Yeah. Right? Writes it the way he would write it, which makes it amazing, but also um, you know, gives the person the feeling that they they had something to do with it. And so the the fact that, you know, he ends up writing a story for free near the end of his life um, to help out this curious weirdo who was always telling tall tales that nobody believed even like he's sort of a Thomas Shap uh, kind of um, uh, Trevor uh, character himself. Um, Lovecraft is. But this other guy was even more like Lovecraft's, uh, you know, version of, of King Kurane's or Kurani's. Don't, if you see what I mean. Yes, absolutely. So these are the pathetic people who, you know, um, who tell lies about their own life experience in order to, in order to make life more tolerable yeah. so that someone thinks that they're not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like in, uh, also in, uh, the, uh, the, the last paragraph of Celephaeus, uh, mm-hmm. kind of points out, uh, what you were talking about, about, uh, you know, his, his, uh, mm-hmm. his attitude and it relating to his life. Um, uh, at the end of it, um, you know, he, he dies, the main character, Karani's, uh, uh, and Karani's reigned thereafter over Uthnargai and all the neighboring regions of dream and still held his court alternately in Celephaeus and in the cloud-fashioned Saranian. He reigns there still, and will reign happily, however, though below the cliffs at Innsmouth, the channel tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who had stumbled through a half-deserted village at dawn, played mockingly and cast it upon the rocks by the ivy-covered Trevor Towers. Now here it is where a notably fat and especially offensive millionaire brewer enjoys the purchased atmosphere of extinct nobility. <laughs> no resentment there, no. no. <laughs> oh, it's, so, take the, I mean, take the know, knife he, and dig it, yeah. He's, he's being rejected left and right uh, and only being published in pulps and, you know, thinks he's a big failure. But, uh, you know, this is how he looks at his quote-unquote failure. I'm the extinct nobility, and you're the offensive brewers who are enjoying my rightful place. <laughs> Lovecraft's family home was in the same town that, you know, he died in, right? The one he grew up in. Um, imagine him walking down the street, and, you know, he's living in that garret apartment uh, above his aunt's, uh, his two twin maiden aunt's house. Um not, not having enough food to eat. Um, and he walks by and that's the place this. And in the image in the Jason Thompson, um, adaptation, mm-hmm. it kind of reminds me of what's that famous American novel that got turned into a Leonardo DiCaprio movie a couple of years ago, maybe last year. Which one? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's about cars. Um, ah, geez, what's it called? Um, uh, it's, it's mo- maybe the most American, a famous American 20, 1920s flapper sort of book. Oh, oh, you're talking about, um, uh, Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby, indeed, which is about a bunch of rich people who spend their time doing parties and not having any, you know, real appreciation of life. Right. Yeah. 
And if you look at the picture on the final page, there's all, like 40 cars parked around and all the trees have cut down, right? Um, it, and that resentment of the former owner, you know, w- wandering past his his childhood home and down to the village where uh near the near the seacoast where he he had previously slept in the day day in the afternoon and his nurse had come and woken him from that dream where he first saw Celepheus. Yep. That is um so tragic and so awesome. Well yeah, just compare the um the the two images of that house we get. The first one it's got trees all around, it's got the ivy, it's framed by that. It looks dark, inviting, mysterious, and then you have this stark, denuded landscape, and the uh, the artist even shows that the, uh, shows the little stumps of the trees, that everything's been cut down, and it's all uh, the, all a uh, austere sort of uh, thinness of reality, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah, so one way of putting it is the um, <laughs> And I love that image of on the top on that same last uh, second second no that's the last page on the last page we start uh, and Kirani's reigned thereafter over Utnargai and the neighboring regions of Dream and you sort of see this like white thing and say what that what's that oh, it's got it's a clear white thing and a bunch of pebbles or something nearby and then you zoom out and it's like his eye right <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the that's the naked, ugly reality that he's he fucking killed himself. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um but he dream he lives forever. The the knights came and got him and said, Hey, you're our king and um took him off. Um should we talk about Thomas Shap? Because uh, that's the, it's the same story, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a little less dark, I think. It's a little less, uh, yeah, little a little less, a little less, dark, little yeah. less Lovecraftian, and and more almost. Uh, I don't know. I'm almost tempted to say uh, tongue in cheek, but I, that could be I think wrong. That's right. No, yeah. I think that that's right. It's it's sort of ironic. Well, 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 you were saying before about uh, about jobs and doing th- things for a living, and that invokes the first paragraph of Thomas Shap. It was the occupation of Mr. Thomas Shap to persuade customers that the goods were genuine and of an excellent quality and as as regards their price unspoken will was consulted. So it's like yeah, that, that's his, his mundane reality is selling upselling stuff to people. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it that took me a couple of times over that sentence to go, what the hell is he talking about? What the, you know, mm-hmm. the consults their unspoken will. And then it dawned on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. Uh, so he convinces them. It's his job to convince them about how great it was in terms of uh, craftsmanship and quality. But as far as the price goes, he's, uh, what do you think is worth? You know? <laughs> he's he's a, he's like a, he's, he's a more compromised Lovecraft, right? Yeah. Uh, he, he, and there's no sense that Thomas Shap had this sort of dignity of nobility in his past, is there? I, I, I don't think so. It's, it's more. He's it, just it's, a man. Yeah, it seems to be more like, uh, you know, just uh, your everyday fellow who, who is uh, particularly dissatisfied with uh, what is his reality. You know? And he's particularly imaginative, right? Yep. And, that, and, it and that's, how he, that's how he saves himself. And it doesn't affect his work until 
the point that it does. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it almost it's it's almost like a fable of uh, don't uh, you know a little fantasy is okay, but uh, just go to the movie theater and enjoy the film, and then go home and you know have a smoke and read uh, read a, a bedtime story, but don't let it affect your work. Right. Whereas in this, <laughs> I get no sense that Curane's uh, or Curani's on on <laughs> in London has any job. I think he's li- like living on the skeleton of of his ancestry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or he's a writer. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, he 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 was a writer. I mean, that's made clear in Celepheus. Yeah, but uh, that he like w- he tried like to be he, a writer and failed. It, yeah, so when I write my dreams down, I tweet them. I don't expect people to make money. You know, I'm not a writer in that sense. So if you're a writer who writes your dreams down, another way of saying fiction, right? And you try to sell it, and people laugh at you. Um, that's you know the writer's life. But if you really commit to it, um, that means you're not going to get paid most of the time. Right. And that's that's really it's really tough. Um, I want to also talk about uh, two later poems in Fungi from Yoga, especially one of them um, that I found incredibly dense. Um, it's uh, number 28. Number 28. Oh. Yeah, it's called Expectancy. Expectancy, all right. Let's, 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 you want to read through I, it again, I Paul? do. I, I like this. I like to do it's that. It's fun to read. I mean, Wayne has the better voice, but it's fun to read. They're, they're fun to read. That's why we want them read. Okay, so Expectancy. I cannot tell why some things hold for me a sense of unplumbed marvels to befall, or of a rift in the horizon's wall, opening to worlds where only gods can be. There is a breathless, vague expectancy, as of a vast ancient pomps I half recall, or wild adventures, uncorporeal, ecstasy fraught, and as a daydream free. It is in sunsets and strange city spires, old villages and woods and misty downs, South winds, the sea, low hills, unlighted towns, old gardens, half-heard songs, and the moon fires. But though its lure alone makes life worth living, none gains or guesses what it hints at giving. Uh, this, uh, I found this completely impenetrable the first time I read it. Well, there's that wall again. Yep. The other side of which is, uh, you know, the place where only gods can be. Mm-hmm. So it it seems to me does it uh, did you get the sense that uh, th- throughout these examples that wall is um is representative of uh you know the line you cross from life to death or am I reading too much into it No I think you're I think you're absolutely right and uh the the wall shows up in all sorts of things right Ex Oblivione uh has a wall mm-hmm. yep. uh, with a bronze gate in it and he gets there via dream and once he gets through, it, it, he doesn't find the city of Celepheus, but he he finds what he was looking for, right? Yep. Which is now the dream. They're all dream quests, right? That the going and getting through the wall um, to the not hidden reality, but the hidden dream world that's there. Um, so this word "rift" is good, and if you just read this story without the context of all the other Lovecraft, like I, you know, I just drop this down on the. St- on the students and we go through it looking at vocab and then uh, you just start thinking like how the words associate with one another and what the pronouns are referring to like it is in sunsets and strange city spires what is it oh it's expectancy mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, so you, get, you go through it again and again and you you actually can 
dig out so much that's in in there that's packed in. So I just want to read a little slower and point out some of the words that are great. I cannot tell why some things hold for me a sense of unplumbed marvels to befall. So the words unplumbed and befall, right? Mm -hmm. Befall is sort of happen, but it also means like literally fall. (laughs) Like it happened to me. It fell upon me. Um, It is fate. It fell into my lap. Right. And the unplumbed, plumbed means measure the depth of, well, by Lovecraft's time on Earth, as I point out to my students, you know, all the oceans had been plumbed, right? We've measured the depth of all the oceans. All the abysses that he talks about in all his stories, they don't really exist, and he knows that. But there is one abyss that he sort of goes to again and again in stories like, uh, I think one's called The High House in the Mist, mm-hmm. which is about a guy who climbs up a mountain on a seaside coast, and he reaches the top of the mountain and discovers like i don't know a god having lunch inside the house and and he looks in the window and the god comes out and sees him and instead of throwing down off the cliff he throws him up into space (laughs) right um and that sort of being thrown off the earth uh listen to the listen to it again i cannot tell why some things hold for me a sense of unplumbed marvels to befall or of a rift in the horizon's wall, right? The horizon cannot have a rift. If you think that there's a wall on the horizon, you're you're literally nuts, right? right? Because it's like the end no of the rainbow. How, yeah. That's right. As as long as you keep walking, there will still be horizon, right? And yet, uh, sun coming up from behind the horizon looks like a rift in the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, uh, the moon coming up, something like that, right? So it's almost as if there was a gate there. And you see this again and again in, in his uh, poetry. Um, opening a, opening to worlds where only gods can be, right? There's no rocket ships that could take you off the earth at this time. There is a breathless, again, there's the void out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Vague expectancy as of vast ancient pomps, I half recall, right? The, the origins of the universe? What the hell is he talking about? Or... Wild adventures, uncorporeal, right? The forced rhyme there, making us think about it a little more. Uncorporeal, without body. Um, that's the only place, the only way you could travel right. to the outer universe. And that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the astral projection was a thing back then, right? And, of course, also, that's the only way you can get to the dream world, too. Yep. And uh, he has these wild adventures, uncorporeal ecstasy fraught that's a nice uh confluence of two things that are the opposite and then the last the last line of the first stanza and as a day dream free or looking at it another way and as a daydream free right yeah so super resonant right and then that that sonnet break allowing us a, a pause a moment of pause he's broken through the wall Sort of, or he's he's made a decision. It is in sunsets and strange city spires, old villages and woods. He's walking down towards that sea coast. Yep. Right. Uh, and woods and misty downs, south winds, the sea, low hills. It's in everything, right? Lighted towns, old gardens, half-heard songs, the moon's fires. But though its lure alone makes life worth living, none gains or guesses 
what it hints at giving. That is that's um, great. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that neat? That is just great. I mean, the 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 wall uh, over which uh, the imagining of what could possibly be there, the expectancy of what could be yep. at, yep. across across the the line of death. That alone makes life worth living because if you don't have any expectations of something or an imagination of something over the the other wall, then you're just embracing the fact that you're going to be extinct and non-existent. Uh, and though its lure alone makes life worth living, none gains or guesses what it hints at giving because that depth is uh, unplumbed because uh it's uh, that that void that that place over the horizon is of problematic depth <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely right it is you know what this poem also reminds me of jesse what's that another book we did a voyage to arcturus mm-hmm, where, absolutely where, where you climb where they climb up to the top of the tower and they astral project beyond the horizon to a completely different planet and they do have sunsets and strange city spires and weird woods and all sorts of things Mm-hmm. On the other side of the rift, as it were. And it's not like Lovecraft literally believed, you know, in astral projection. It's just that he wants, he knows what those things are. He wanted to be an astronomer. He knows what those those peering stars are. And, you know, going on his night walks, thinking about uh, what what's up there and everyone else, you know, wandering wandering around doing their things. They're not thinking about that. It is isolating. One of the things that's not in this poem is any human, right? All the there's the the old villages, the woods, the misty downs, the south winds, the sea, the low hills, the lighted towns, which means it's at night and everybody's indoors, right? Old gardens, half heard songs, and the moon's fires. He's walking alone here. Yeah, it's the only way to go. Uh, the word rift shows up in the poem. Uh, sorry, the story twice as well uh, near the. Uh, I was going to say near the beginning, but the whole thing's near the beginning because it's all it's such a short story. I want to read the two parts where it shows up. Faith had urged him on over the precipice and into the gulf mm. where he had floated down, down, down three times to make it magic, right? Part past darkness, shapeless, undreamed dreams, fainting glow, faint, faintly glowing spheres that may have been partly dreamed dreams. And are they his? And laughing winged things that seemed to mock the dreamers of all the worlds. Then a rift seemed to open in the darkness before him. And he saw the city. It's like the sun's coming up, right? And he saw the city of the valley glistening radiantly far, far below. With a background of sea and sky and a snow-capped mountain near the shore. Then we skip down. Um, he's gone into Celepheus again. Yeah. Uh, Skip down to the uh, two paragraphs, and it start, starts. But three nights afterwards, Curanis came again to Celepheus. As before, he dreamed first of the village that was asleep or dead, right? With the lights off or the lights, uh, you know, like just an old abandoned town. And of the abyss, down which one must float silently. Then the rift appeared again. The sun's going up, the sun's going down again. Uh-huh. And he beheld the glittering minarets of the city and saw the graceful galleys riding at anchor in the blue harbor and watched the ginkgo trees of the of Mount Aran swaying in the sea breeze. Uh, ginkgo uh, is like a Japanese 
tree or Chinese tree, right? It's a, it's a very ancient tree. I mean, it dates back Indeed. to the dinosaurs. Um, I don't know if Lovecraft would have known this, but uh, it's also an aid in memory. Yep, ginkgo biloba. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah. That's right. So uh, there's, a, there's a sense that... Um, Time he, and memory. Yeah, he's, it's, very, it's very good, I think. And uh, the next one, Nostalgia, I didn't reread this for um, today, but I think, number 29, I think that it will probably follow perfectly well from the previous stanza, which is the one we just did, Expectancy. You want to read that one too, Paul? You bet. Okay. Once every year, in autumn's wistful glow, the birds fly out over an ocean waste, calling and chattering in the joyous haste. To reach some land their inner memories know, great terrace gardens where bright blossoms blow, and lines of mangoes, luscious to the taste, and temple groves with branches interlaced over cool paths, all these things their brave, their vague dreams show. They search the sea for marks of their old shore, for the tall city, white and turreted, but only empty waters stretch ahead, so that at last they turn away once more, yet sunken deep where alien polyps throng, the old towers miss their lost, remembered song. <laughs> sunken city. Yep. But they're... They're looking for their, their city that they once knew, right? Yep. And the city waits for them, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, uh, it's amazing what, what this guy did. And I just... I, 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 I was thinking, you know, like, for Christmas, um, I don't really... I don't like it when people give me books, you know, because I got lots of books. And I was thinking, well... well I always have this real difficult relationship with giving gifts at Christmas. It's coming up, right? Um, so I, I work on it in different ways. But I also don't like receiving gifts because if it's not something I genuinely like, I, I'm not good at faking it. <laughs> uh, it's like, like okay, somebody's going to hand me a book like they've done many times before because they know I like books, right? Um, and, I'm, and I was thinking, well, there's no book I could actually want. That I have everything I need. But then... I was thinking, you know what? If somebody handed me uh, like a very common book, like a book of Poe short stories, I would be happy, even though I have every story already. Yep, yep. <laughs> I would be happy because for a, a minute or two, I would be able to open it up and look through and read the stories that I've read before, or maybe one of the few that I haven't read before. And that would be good enough for in that moment. Even though, you know, they spent money on it and spent time thinking about it. It was only, it's only, that's ridiculous that I would be happy to have a gift I've already received. And yet that's how it is. Yeah, that's the same with me, except that it's with cash. As much much cash as I get, I can always, I always appreciate more. So (laughs) you want to make a note of that for Christmas. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it it is kind of similar now that you think about it. Uh, Another thing, um, these two, uh, uh, pieces reminded me of particularly the first one expectancy uh mm-hmm. speaking of poe is uh the city by the sea have you ever mm-hmm. uh I love that poem. that's mm-hmm. uh that's that that's another uh sort of uh uh dreamlike image of perhaps that which lies beyond the wall you know mm-hmm. the uh, and suicide too yeah yep jumping jumping from a high tower yeah Low death has reared himself. A, I'm doing it from memory. Uh, reared himself a throne. 
Uh, no, I can't. I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So That's like, more than I could have remembered off the top of my head. It's pretty good. It's a pretty great poem. Um, and there's a, a very similar. Uh, there's one that gives me a similar feeling um, to that by uh, Tolkien, um, it, which is not a guy who sort of is. It, Tolkien's much more like Dunsany, I think, uh, than po- Poe's much more like Lovecraft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Poe's uh, City in the Sea is is a beautiful and almost horrible lessness. There's no almost horribleness in it, right? There's no sort of dripping decay that you see in so much of his stuff. Yeah. There's no uh, usherness, you know, if, if you understand what I mean, um, in The City and the Sea. It, it's just beautiful. And there's a, a poem by Tolkien called uh, Princess Me, M-E-E. Um, and it's about uh, a girl on ice over a lake. I think she's might be is uh, I picture her figure skating and we see the reflection of her below the surface. Mm-hmm. So it's the same way uh, the city in the sea is a reflection of the city, you know, in the waves and the city is future and f- city's past. Mm-hmm. Um, we see the girl reflected beneath the surface of the lake. And uh, it's, uh, there's something, you know, so great that is that this is a poem, Right. If you read uh, the Thomas Schaap story, yes. it's a story. Right. It's it's got some cute poeticness in it. I mean, even the guy's name Schaap, is it's like shape shaper the dreams, right? It's it's clever. Or shop. Or, or yeah, a shop. Yeah, Good because point. because yeah, because he's because he he's works a, a yeah, shop for a living. Yep. Yep. And that's right. Um, but in this in this poem in this story, every word is placed. So as to create the effect of some poetic device or other. And it has a, a, it's profound. And the repetition that you see over and over again, uh, where the sea meets the sky, right? That comes up again and again. The whole beginning is recapitulated at the end as well. Right? The fact that he's seeing the city um, and he's he's seeing it as he, saw before that's how it ends uh, i think it's this end of the second uh no end of the third paragraph uh faith had urged him on and over the precipice and into the gulf where he had floated down 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 past right and then it ends with uh far below with a background of sea and sky and snow-capped mountains near the shore and then we go down to the bottom and karani's reigned thereafter in Uthnargai and all the neighboring regions of dream. But right before that, endlessly down, the horsemen floated, their chargers pawing the ether as gift galloping over the golden sands, and then the luminous vapor spread apart to reveal the greater brightness and the brightness of the city of Celepheus, and the seacoast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor towards the distant regions where the sea meets the sky. It's like you you feel it, even if you didn't notice it, you feel it. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's why you can go back and again and again and again and read it again and get it's it's this is a dream written down that we can recapture a lot easier than the the dreamer could. We just get another copy of the story and read it again. Yeah. 
And that it's kind of pathetic that you want to keep reading the same story over and over again. But <laughs> I, I, I listened to it several times in making a map that I hope Jesse will put into the show notes. I yeah, I saw that. So yeah, I was inspired. Like I, I should I should depict Selfaeus somehow. And yeah, next thing I know, yeah. I had a depiction of Selfaeus complete with the mountain and and the temple. So you use some sort of uh, is for RPG? Was that how I, it, you made it? Yeah, it, it it's a piece of software called uh, Campaign Cartographer. Mm-hmm. So I use the city module to uh, make a little map of Selfaeus as well. It's all or this depiction anyway. It's not really that much mm-hmm. of a map, but yeah, but yeah, I was. I was Lovecraft inspired me to art, which it's, I can't say is a bad thing. No, no it's, it's a great thing. Um, you guys noticed, of course, that at the end, he's uh, the 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 abandoned village um, is at Innsmouth, right? a real yes. place in yes. England. Yeah. This is in England, not in. <clears throat> I, I don't think it's so even supposed. To, I don't think he had invented it, the other Innsmouth yet. Yeah, but. Um, uh, like all his fictional cities, you know, there's a river running through it. There's a river running through this one. There's sort of the, the actual geography, the actual architecture, right? But the difference between the Innsmouth that uh, is in his horror fiction and the replacement land beyond is the replacement city beyond Innsmouth is they're completely inverted, right? One is... One is um, a real place you can get to by car that is horrible, horrible, decaying, right? Yeah. Uh, full of decaying monstrosities uh, and uh, the ancient avatism coming back to haunt you. Um, whereas here uh, in the city of Salafaeus, everything is beautiful and gorgeous and can never rot or get older. But- and instead of an ancient uh, ancestry, right? Is the beginning of a new golden age with with Kareins as the king. Yeah, because, because uh, yeah, because he comes back and things have only gone. He's, he thinks he's been back away from years, but it's like for them, it's only been an hour, and it's like yep. everything was all fresh and new, and that golden age adorning. So, so I want I want to steer this a little bit into uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and how this story does and doesn't fit into that i mean mm-hmm. in the dream quest and no kadath we get several references to selophaeus and to kiranis and there was one, one thing i didn't catch until i just looked at it just before that okay so i'm, I'm going to read this um certainly the great face carbon on that mountain was of no strange sort but the kin of such a he that was william randolph carter had seen often in the taverns of the seaport Selefeus, which lies in Uthnagai beyond the Tyrrhenian hills, is ro- ruled over by that King Hiranis whom Carter once knew in waking life. Right. Uh, that's that's the line. He's like, wait, what? He knew him in the real world? Yeah. So that that brings to mind those sorts of weird questions. Like, it, okay, so so is this Lovecraft kind of inserting if if Kiranis is a sort of a avatar of Lovecraft in some ways. Does that mean that Lovecraft is trying to insert himself into Carter's story? But oh yeah, Carter knows me. Mm. Wow, interesting. In, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Carter's kind of an analog for for Lovecraft as well. Yeah, the right? more mu- the yeah the more muscular adventurer. I'm going to travel across the dreamlands, whereas Kiranis is more like I'm gonna 
I'm going to create my perfect, the perfect city of my memory and my dreams. And here it is. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they kind of all, they were kind of both pieces of himself. But it's, it's really interesting because he, he doesn't just travel through Earth Nargai in Salafaeus. He travels all around the dreamlands, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's always Salafaeus he wants to go back to. Right. It's just that Salafaeus is, is the, is his personal dream quest rather than, uh, right. Kadat, right? Um, and it's like, uh, the infection of dream, um, dream travel. Uh, he met, uh, Randolph Carter meets, uh, this, Kiranis, whatever his name is, uh, Trevor, I guess is his last name, because uh, the Trevor Towers at the end, yep. right? Um, he meets him in real life and he says, Oh, my dreams, they're so vivid. Oh, you got to try it. Right? Here, hit, take a hood, a hit of this hookah or whatever it is. Um, and then they, <laughs> he says, Yeah, it's great. And he goes on his own dream quest. Um, and it, it, Celepheus is in the story uh, 24 times. Um, mentioned over i mean often in the same paragraph the city is mentioned over and over again wow. but but then now here here comes uh, a little bit of regret from later on in dream quest for though kiranis was a monarch in the land of dream with all imagined pomps and marvels splendors and beauties ecstasies and delights novelties and excitements at his command he would gladly have resigned forever the whole of his power and luxury and freedom for one blessed day as a simple boy in that pure and quiet England, that ancient beloved England, which had molded his being, of which he must always be immutably a part. He misses reality in the end. Mm-hmm. And we traded all for a, for a day back. That the whole like trading, like the one thing you can't buy more is time sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now he's only, that he's only a dream figure. He wants to go back to reality for even one day. Or at least uh, back to his uh, reality as a child before he right matured yeah, they, into the realization of how much everything in the universe sucks. <laughs> yeah, you know. And, yeah. and this brings me into mind of something that Jesse hasn't read yet, and that's a recent the the recent uh, the dream the dream quest developed bow by Kids Johnson. Right. Which yeah, which is about a dreamer who winds up in, coming into reality looking for a lost dreamer. Mm-hmm. And having adventures along the way, including running into Randolph Carter. She she doesn't, as I recall, actually go to Celepheus, but she does she does have uh, dealings with Carter in the story. And mm-hmm. and that whole and 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 okay, I I I'm so tempted to spoil the story. I don't want to do it. Okay, okay, do it. okay, spoil okay. Listeners, if you haven't read the story, you want to be spoiled, uh, stop listening for a second. Okay. So, Spoiler announcement. Spoiler announcement. So at, oh, no. at the end of the at the end of the story, Velvet Bow winds up uh, exiling herself to reality. Okay. She has to because the gods of uh, Uthar are going to uh, do bad things to her if she ever returns to dream. So she basically decides that she's better off staying in the real world. And so she's in the same situation as Kiranis. Except right? except except the reverse. Yes, she's yeah. a dream figure now exiled to reality instead of. A, a real person stuck in dream, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I missed her name, Paul. Help me. What was that? Kij Johnson. K I J. K I J. Yep. Okay. It's a new new book. I assume there's an audio book out there, is there, Paul? Um, I don't know if there's a audio book. It, it's it's a novella that came out uh, just this year. I don't know if they did an audio of it. I, 
Let me find out real quick if they did. I hope they did. But yeah, it it's it, it's it's relatively short because it's only about it's part of the tour thingies. Um there is no audio at this time. Dang it. Well, I I don't know if there will be, but what I, I do want to know is it, it are Wayne, are you gonna do a, a nice uh, version of this and put it up for sale somewhere? Um I am actually since uh, Good. Uh, put, pair it with Thomas Schaap. Yeah, um, that's an yeah, obvious. That, that's an obvious duo. That'd be a great idea. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a number of things. Uh, like I was thinking exactly, Paul, you pointed out uh, the Coleridge. Uh, um, uh, Kublai, that was Wayne. Kublai Khan. Oh, was that you, Wayne? Okay. Yeah. Um, thinking like there is an anthology of, of <laughs> there must be of dream stories out there, but just finding the connections between a number of them, you get sort of one leading to the next. It's pretty amazing what uh, there's a whole subgenre of sort of dream fiction out there. Sure. That'd be, that'd be a, a, a great collection to have in, uh, in any form, whether an audio form or uh, I know. just an e- ebook, just to ha- have them all together. You know, it's uh, exactly uh, great. And then we'll let one lead to the other and, read them as your daydreams at your terrible job (laughs) (laughs) then uh, retire to the sea coast and go uh for a a little sleep uh sleepwalking yeah but just uh but just not too much because you'll end up like mr shop well what's the worst that could happen yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right i don't think we did a very good job of summarizing the story but um i think people should read it on their own Absolutely. There's a lot to discover in there. And uh, um, as you mentioned before, it, it, it's the kind of thing you can return to. So, Oh, so many times. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Um, oh, so maybe uh, I was thinking, Wayne, one of the reasons you might want to do it is how to pronounce the name of the fucking story. Um, is it because the only time you see that letter, I with two dots over it, is in the word naive. And I don't want to feel naive, but I don't know how to pronounce the title of this story. What does the I do? Is that what it does? E. E. Huh? Is it an E sound? Salafis? 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 Um, Salafis is what I've heard some people say. Salafis? Yeah, I like Salafis, but I have a feeling it's wrong. What happened to Wayne? Um, we lost him. We lost Wayne. Crap. We lost the Wayne. <laughs> Chew back hands on my big long pipe. <laughs> Oh dear God! <laughs> no. Looks like he's back online. Let's see if we can. Get yeah. Him. Hello. Oh. All right. What happened to you? I don't know. Am I? Uh, you uh, went away. My whole you came back. My whole uh, computer shut down. So turned. Okay. Turned it back on again and then dialed in and here I am. Okay. Oh, we didn't even hear it happen. Okay. Um. So I guess you didn't hear all that thing I was saying about 
about how to pronounce the name of this story? Uh, no, the last thing I heard was uh, t- you talking about how much you want to rob our children of their trees by printing things out. Ah, uh, okay, yes, <laughs> that was that was in the past. Now I, I'm reformed. Oh, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, but but um, I don't know what you covered, but um, I did some research on that, and I found out that the 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 double dot above the I mm-hmm. isn't actually an umlaut, but uh, because that's German and it indicates right. some kind of new pronunciation or vowel shift or something in the language. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the other one, I forget the name of it. I'm trying to look it up now, but it, it's actually a French. Uh, yeah, diacritical mark that indicates that the two vowels that are together are supposed to be pronounced separately. So instead of cellophane, uh, I think uh, the the narrator from our uh, our audio there, Mister Mister mm-hmm. Gold, I think he I think he he had the right intuition because he said what uh, cellophane? Phase, yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's good to know. Let's let's get started. Well, we haven't actually started. We were about to start, but. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can talk. Yeah. Save that for the podcast. Right. right. Okay. Here we go. Um, got yours going? Yep. Okay, here we go.